welcome to Antidote Stories in Medicine. I know there was no episode last week and I apologize. Things have been chaotic to say the least and pretty laughable in one of those laugh because otherwise you're going to cry kind of ways. Um, Work has been very busy. I started my new job and it's wonderful, but (laughs) it's always that stress of trying to learn how to do a new job and you know how to do the job, but you're trying to figure out how to do it in this new system and you feel like you are trying to run in molasses. And for some reason, I am a complete black cloud and all of these really crazy things are happening with my new patients. And I'm like, I know how to treat this, but I don't know how to treat this here, like a measles outbreak and (laughs) really, really sick people with blood pressures of like 240 over 160 in a primary care setting. And you're like, okay, well, how do I do it here? How do you do it? Um, And then of course, at home, there's all this construction going on. And I had mild CO poisoning that I thought was the flu, which is actually what this episode is going to be about. And then these construction workers, they keep turning off our water and we had a gas leak. And like, it's been, it's been a little bit rough. (laughs) So podcasting has kind of taken a little bit of a backseat. So I apologize. And because of that, I always want to make sure that I am producing good episodes with good audio quality. I don't want to just put out things that I wouldn't want to listen to myself. So I'm going to take a little bit of a pause on the podcasting for about a month and come back in March. And hopefully I will have had some episodes in the bank and I don't have to worry about, you know, rushing to get stuff out the door every week and take a little bit of time off to figure out what the hell is going on at home and work. And then it'll be less stressful. So I apologize for the little bit of a delay, but it's a little bit of a February vacation (laughs) for everybody. Um, And I have a bunch of ideas and plans for the podcast in the future. So I really want to implement them when I have a second to breathe clean air. And (laughs) I really hope you guys will stick around and subscribe and continue to interact on social media because I will definitely be doing that. And I'm still looking for guests. So if you still want to be interviewed for the podcast, please do reach out to me because I will still be recording when the incessant jackhammering of concrete stops and we have water again. That would be great. Um, (laughs) And I'm, I'm planning to record ahead of time. So please do reach out to me, you know, follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and email me at antidotespodcast at gmail.com. All of that stuff. All right. So let me tell you about this little bit of craziness that happened and kind of this revelation that I had as a result of it that is related to medicine and actually related to a bit of my EMS uh, career and kind of brought up this this case that I had, obviously I remembered, but didn't realize was still affecting me. So I have been alluding to what happened last week at our house, and I really want to talk about this, not so much to air our dirty laundry, but I feel like families have had issues like this. And I, I talk a lot about having done kind of difficult cases and the experiences that we go through in EMS or in medicine and kind of how they impact our careers in medicine and how they stick with you. But sometimes that carries over into your normal life or you think you're super aware of something and you can get blindsided as well. So so instead of having a special guest to talk about their career in medicine, the guest-ish this week is... James 
my boyfriend, not James, former EMT partner, James, whose voice you probably heard if you listened to our like pre-procedural clearance episode, which I don't recommend listening to. Please don't go back and listen to that. (laughs) He did the introduction and then has not really made much of an appearance since. I guess welcome back to part of the podcast that you are kind of part of, but don't really listen to. (laughs) Hi, Christine. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. Well, uh, first of all, I, I would like to say I am a special guest. I'm special to your heart. And uh, hey, it's, I'm cutting it's, that part out. <laughs> <laughs> Aw. Uh, but it is, it's, it's great to be here. I think what we're going to discuss is certainly uh, something that should be known to the audience. And that is, like you said, has happened to many families. And we, we should just get right into it. <laughs> oh, my God. I feel like we're being really dramatic. Okay. We rent this townhouse and we had all this construction going on underneath of our, this is a little bit of backstory. This may be boring. I'm sorry. We had all this construction going on underneath of our townhouse. We didn't really know it was going to happen. They just started replacing all these concrete beams. So there's all this drilling and there. It's like a scene from Monty Python, Uh, Monty Python, the Holy Grail, when they're like building the Trojan rabbit and you just hear off in the distance, all this horrible horrible construction noise. Uh, It was just going on for like weeks. And we started getting like all of this dust everywhere. And it was, oh my God, this has been like a nightmare. It's It was all over the place. It was in our kitchen. It was around the TV. We have two windows out front and it was just- (laughs) The TV, the such an important part. Well, it was Super Bowl weekend, very important. But just in front of our two windows, we had a nice thick layer of uh, concrete dust that was kicked up. And, And in our lungs too. Yeah. Big problem. So you're like, oh my God, this po- this is not a dust podcast. This is so boring. <laughs> but the dust matters because we have this really old gas oven and we're cooking and this has been going on for weeks and we start to get this really powerful smell of gas when we're cooking sometimes. And we're like, this is weird. Okay, maybe we're just, I don't know. We blow it off. It like it's not all the time. It's just when we turn the stove on and we're preheating it. Like it smells weird. So <laughs> I don't know when, but I think at some point we were like, we should buy more smoke detectors well, for the apartment. I I remember when you suggested this. We had just gone. We were about to go to bed, and we were laying in bed. And you said, "Do we have CO detectors?" And we, we actually we have one we have a smoke detector in the hallway, but we don't actually. Yeah, but it's ha- not a combo. It's not a combo, and we didn't have CO detectors. I don't, why it, was I being paranoid laying in bed going I fire safety? I don't know because we were talking about one thing, and then you brought that up out of nowhere. So the next. Oh, I think I think it was because we were talking about the time that in a previous life. I came home drunk at 2 a.m. Uh, okay. and decided to test all the smoke detectors in my apartment. That Yes, that was it. And then I was like, I don't think we have any here. <laughs> and, it, and it turns out we didn't. We so, we had one that was hardwired to the house and it was, oh, and it was only upstairs. Yeah. So yeah. we're like, oh, this yeah. is not good. So she mentioned that. And honestly, probably about, I don't know, a few days later, I went on Amazon and ordered two CO detectors. Uh, they were just the... They were about like $20, $25. They were the Amazon seller's choice. We bought the smoke detectors. They were delivered. And uh, to be honest, I really didn't install them until about two weeks later. Yes. We put one <laughs> We put one near the kitchen and then we put one uh, in our bedroom. So it's a two floor like townhouse. Yeah. So one on one. It's 
it's not very big. No. We live in DC. There's not a lot of space to be had. So, you know, one on each floor. It just happens that the few days before this whole incident happened was when we installed these CO detectors. So I start my new job, as I've been saying, and everything's really crazy. And I work really late on Tuesdays, except for some reason there is a dusting of snow and they decided to close work early because all of DC shut down. I'm so tired from... They had scheduled me for overtime and I was like still like learning everything and just exhausted. And I think I was also coming down with like a little bit of a cold. And so I'm just like not feeling like 100%. And so I get home and I just walk in the door and then I'm just like, I don't feel that great. And then you are going to... Well, Make dinner. You, well, you first came in and thought you had uh, you thought you were getting the flu because it is flu season. Well, yeah, and of course yeah. I've treated like a bunch of people with the flu. And and this this was also a weird day too because you know it's DC and Virginia. And once you get a little bit of snow, everything is closed. So usually on Tuesday nights, I'm not home. I'm right. at school. I felt but, like I did. I definitely had a little bit of, of a virus. So I just happened to be home on this Tuesday night as well. Right, and you're like, oh, I'm gonna cook something. Which James is a world-renowned chef. <laughs> yes. If you like salmon and green beans, I'm your guy. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> yeah. So you decide to start cooking and you're like heating up the oven and you're doing all this stuff. And I was like, I'm just going to go lay down and read or whatever while you're making dinner, which is like, hey, cool. You can make dinner. And so the flu comes on. Normal flu presentation is all of a sudden hit by a truck. That's like one of the questions that I ask in my assessment of someone is like, did it come on really fast and you feel like you got hit by a truck? And that's what this felt like. I was like, wow, I'm super, super tired. And I have this really sore throat. And this year's flu has been sore throat. And I just feel like I don't want to do anything. And I have like a little bit of a cough and I'm kind of dizzy. And I went upstairs because I'm always cold and I was having chills as well. So the heat was on and the heat's much, much warmer in our upstairs. So everything was warmer upstairs. I was chilling in bed, just not feeling good. And you're downstairs cooking away. Do you want to tell this part? <laughs> so I'm down in the so I'm down in the kitchen cooking and all of a sudden our CO detectors start going off. And I I think I think what happened was you asked me like, hey, why is the CO detector going off? <laughs> And I, at first... I think I said, what is that alarm sound? Well, you, you said, what is that alarm? And I, basically, I just blew it off. And I, the first thing I thought of was like, oh, did I buy the cheap CO detectors? Did I get the ones out of Amazon? Like, I, I start I start scrolling through the Amazon comments, seeing, like, if there's any <laughs> factory or software, like, oh, fuck, what's the word I'm looking for? Defects in it, in the detector. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I got the cheap ones. Yeah. And and Christine is like, uh, no, James, the CO detector is going off. We have carbon monoxide. And I I completely disregarded her. I mean, this was over like mm, maybe like an hour and a half, too, because I was like, what's that alarm? And you're like, I don't know. I think it's the smoke detectors. And I was like, "Okay," because they just they chirp like once or twice and they get more frequent the more CO there is. And I was just upstairs and was like are you going to check it? <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, you're downstairs still cooking and you're checking something, just not the CO detectors. You're just checking to see if they're faulty uh, yeah. on Amazon. And the way we problem solve things is completely different. different. 
I'm going to talk about CO poisoning from a very medical standpoint and the physiology of it and the treatment of it. And I'm going to deep dive into it after James and I tell this story. Uh, I don't usually do medical education on the podcast, but why not? Um, Just I think it would be kind of interesting. And I learned a lot about it more than I knew. And I figured I would share it on this platform. But CO rises with air. It's almost the same um, density as air. So as warm air rises, so does CO. So I was sitting upstairs where it was much warmer. The CO that was being produced by the stove, which we'll get into in a second, was rising. And so there was much higher levels of CO in the bedroom. And I'm not sure why the alarm in the bedroom was not going off. I do think there's something wrong with that one um, because the batteries just kind of kept falling Mm. out. But that's a problem. So anyway, so about after like an hour of this just chirping and me going, why is this still chirping? I come downstairs and you're just still cooking. And I was one thought I had the flu. So I was pretty grumpy anyways. And was just like, why the fuck haven't we checked this? And I checked the CO detector and it says that we're at like almost 100 parts per million of CO. And so I'm like, well, well, we, maybe we- it's just too close to the stove that's we installed the or i installed the co detector kind of just on the outside of the kitchen too so i initially thought it was like oh it's just too close to the stove and that's why it's picking up such strong levels right i mean we CO. we both yeah. thought that and that was not true but we were like okay because no one wants to be like we have a co problem or we have a gas leak or something's going on like usually like co is produced by combustion so you think like, I'm not running a car in my living room. Like, you know, obviously the stove is on, but you, you you don't think of the worst case scenario right away. So we turn off the oven and we start ventilating it. And then we see the numbers on the, the detectors going down. And and then that was it. We kind of actually we did cook dinner a little bit longer, but all the windows were open and all the fans were open and then everything was fine. And then magically I felt better. But I was feeling like really, really lethargic. I was feeling really dizzy and I was attributing it to the flu. And I kept checking my temperature actually upstairs and I didn't have a fever. And I kept saying to you, like, this doesn't really feel like the flu. Like, I don't have the body aches. I just feel really exhausted. This doesn't feel right for the flu, but maybe it was because I had the flu shot. It doesn't feel as bad as it should be. Or maybe that's why I don't have a fever. Because I was thinking about, oh, should I call it work tomorrow? So we didn't really think anything of it. And then two nights later, we were cooking again, and we're laying in bed. And then a few hours later, the CO alarms are going off upstairs in the bedroom. And then again, you're like, "Oh, they must be faulty again." And I'm like, "No, we need we need to check these. Like, we can't just assume the CO alarms are not right." And again, we ventilated the apartment. We put on a bunch of fans, and it was actually really low level this time. And the stove was off, so it was okay. There was no symptoms that time. So come to find out, because of all this concrete dust, it had gotten into our oven and had settled on our burners and caused the burners to not burn well. And when the burners were on, it was burning the natural gas really inefficiently and then producing really high levels of CO, so carbon monoxide. And our apartment's pretty small, and so that's what was happening. So basically, we haven't we've had to turn our gas off at the stove, and we can't use our oven for a while. And we're we have to get a special stove to replace it. And it's just it's been this whole nightmare. That all being said, on Saturday night, after we had the gas company coming out at midnight because we were getting more CO alarms after we turned the oven on again and figuring this whole thing out, I was pretty frustrated. And also just kind of like it was dawning on me that what Tuesday really was and that it was not the flu and that I actually had pretty mild CO poisoning. 
I was pretty pissed off and also was just really terrified. And I kind of expressed that to you and not, again, not to really air our dirty laundry, but I, I want to kind of talk about this on the podcast just because, again, I feel like other couples where one person has worked in medicine and one person has not have had this experience and they've had maybe arguments like this. James, do you want to maybe say your side of this a little bit? Well, so we, we had the gas company come out uh, Saturday night and they, they shut off our gas and they basically, uh, they told us what was going on. Our burners uh, messed up. So we've been without a stove ever since. And then I've, neither of us hadn't really eaten in a few hours. So we decided to go out and get uh, McDonald's. And on the way back. I don't eat McDonald's. I don't know what you're oh, talking Okay, about. of course. <laughs> and uh, on our way back, uh, or actually when we got back, uh, we got into a bit of a, a bit of a fight. It's, it's what it is. And uh, I was uh, very angry at Christine. Uh, honestly, it was probably the biggest fight we've ever had. And it, it just um, it, it just started devolving real quick. I was really concerned that I had had CO poisoning and I didn't know yeah. about it. And, and I, I, yeah. And you kind of blew it off. I was expressing to you just my concerns that you weren't taking it seriously and you didn't really understand why I was upset about that. Yeah. I, I wasn't aware of the, like, obviously, CO poisoning is a bad thing, but I, I wasn't aware of how bad it could be. And, and one of the symptoms, and Christine can obviously speak more about this, is um, anger. And after we got into our uh, argument, I was uh, very angry. Also, th- that night you had tried to cook again, and then... Uh, yeah, also, I had tried to... <laughs> I tried to cook again. Uh, I, well, I, I was just testing the stove out, uh, and then about two hours later when Christine came home... Uh, our, sm- our CO detector went off because the, the uh, I took the batteries out because it was it was annoying me because uh, <laughs> it was going off because there was, was CO off. in the house. Was, yeah, it was going off. It was annoying me. I, I had a window open, but stupid uh, me. Yeah, Stu- stupid me. But eh. so I was I was very frustrated, and I expressed that frustration. And I I think as far as our our disagreements go, I think. I would like to say that I was just like really exasperated and and not like yelling, but I think you just didn't understand where I was coming from and you took it a little bit more personally than I meant it. Right. I agree. And yeah. it got kind of heated, um, unlike our stove. <laughs> and there was just this huge disconnect. And then, so in this whole disagreement, I all of it, like all of a sudden, I just kind of looked at you and I was like, I've seen somebody die from this. How do you not take this seriously? I saw somebody drop dead from this. And all of a sudden the conversation changed and you kind of just looked at me like, what? And then I, I realized like, I, I didn't know all this entire week. I had been like freaking out about CO, about carbon monoxide being in our house because I had seen somebody from a call 10 years ago die from like carbon monoxide poisoning from a fire. And I I was just flipping out. And then that whole day when it was really sinking in after we found out what was going on, it was causing it. And like the reality that I could have died and that James could have died and that we were, had been kind of ignoring it. it. Like this whole memory was kind of like just in my subconscious and I had no idea. And it was just kind of haunting me. 
Yeah, when we were, um, when you told me uh, that story, uh, well, for one, that was the moment I felt like the biggest uh, asshole in the world. And and I'm second, really good at doing that. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. It, I mean, I, I, you started telling me the details of the story, and that that was the moment. And I, you, you have a lot of, um, you have a lot more. Obviously, I mean, you work in medicine. You have stories. You, I, I there was a point. I, I, I just didn't understand. I didn't know the story beforehand. I didn't put the dots together. But after you start explaining as to what happened and why why this moment in time uh, just stuck out for you, that's when I realized, oh shit, I'm a fucking idiot. I need to take things a little more seriously. So I'm going to tell the story, but I mean, like, I don't mean to say that like every moment in life should be living lived in fear, right? But, but- there, when you've done a job like like EMS, especially when you've been a firefighter, when you've been a cop. There are just like certain things that you just hold with you and you don't even realize it. I think this is probably one of the first moments for me that it really st- stuck out that this this thing that I thought didn't bother me really hit home in a moment when I wasn't expecting it. Next two of us. Yeah. So the story is about 10 years ago, it was in the it was in the winter back up in Massachusetts and it was a really, really cold day. It was one of those like super, super chill days, like below zero Fahrenheit. And there was a house fire and we were actually not even the first truck on scene. There was a, there was another truck there and this house was like fully engulfed. And the first ambulance there was treating this guy who is middle-aged and they said that he was outside talking to them in the backyard without shoes on in the snow because it's Massachusetts in the winter and there's just snow everywhere. Or at least there was this winter. And he, all of a sudden he just got really combative and then he went into cardiac arrest and he was dead. And that was it. Like they just couldn't bring him back. And this entire house is just fully engulfed. I mean, this was a multi-alarm fire and in the city, like response times are very, very quick here. This wasn't like no one could get get there. They didn't know about it. Like they got notified very fast. The the station was like a couple streets away. I think it was very much hindered. Actually, we ended up finding I'll, I'll get into that later, but it was hindered by fire hydrants not being shoveled out. There was a lot of snow that year. So this crew and another were working this cardiac arrest for this first guy. So we get called in actually as the third ambulance. The house is sitting up on a hill and because of the weather and the hill and just all the water for putting out the fire, it's solid ice uh, going up the hill. And we had to park at the bottom of this hill and come up. And for some reason, so I wear contacts and for some reason I was wearing glasses that day. Maybe I was really poor and ran out of my contacts. I don't know why I was wearing glasses, but I was. I never, ever, ever wear glasses, especially to work. I remember getting like coming up this big hill that was full of ice with my partner and everything. The whole second story was in fire and there's this large porch kind of overhanging the front door and the fire department carries out a body that is very, very badly burned. And they basically just throw her in a snowbank right out of the front door. And it's almost under this, this second story porch that is fully engulfed. And so 
I'm not a firefighter. I'm not wearing any gear. I think they gave us some shitty like helmets that we're supposed to be wearing, but like one, they look stupid. And like if a porch is going to fall on you, like whatever, it's not going to be that hopeful. I mean, maybe for like a little bit of debris and stuff, but should I have been wearing it? Yeah, maybe. I don't know where it was. Anyway, so we, of course, the fire department, um, all the lieutenants and whomever was in charge, there's lines running everywhere. They're like, get her out of the way, get her out of the way. We got to run more lines. And of course, my partner, like, well, you fuckers put her here. Like, we got to get her. So I remember I put my gloves on and we go to log roll her. I put one hand on her hip and one hand on her shoulder as we're putting a longboard underneath the back of her. And it's in this big snowbank. And I go to roll her and my hand on her hip just pulls away burnt skin and her skin, her skin just comes off in my hand. It was so burned. And so I just throw it on the ground. We roll her and then we get her on there and we get her on the um, stretcher. And I had known that there was another cardiac arrest. I had heard on the radios that like, oh yeah, we're talking to someone. And then I had heard that, oh, he just arrested in front of us and that they're transporting him. And so then we got called in. And so I kind of had known that that was going on and that that's why we were there, but I didn't know who this woman was. So my partner and I start working this code. We find out obviously she doesn't have any pulses, but we can't tell how old she is because she's so badly burned. She's got third degree burns on basically 100% of her body. Her clothes are melted to her. I remember so distinctly that we we end up assuming that she's elderly because she had compression hose that was melted to her body and the the stuff that like old ladies wear. We were like, okay, we think that's what she is. And so another ambulance shows up, the paramedics show up and we're still at the top of the hill. And if you've ever heard about riding the rails, like if you watch like EMS or ER shows, like a paramedic's like on top of a body doing CPR. Well, you don't get on top of the stretcher, but there are these rails that are on the bottom of the stretcher and you'll stand on them sometimes if you need to go for distances. And one person basically puts one arm around the patient and then another arm is just doing one-handed CPR while you're moving um, unless you have like an automatic CPR device. But this was like 10 years ago, so or, you know, about or being approximate for confidentiality. We didn't have those devices. If we did, they um, they were far and few between and they were not super effective and the batteries would die and it just wasn't, we didn't have them. So I was the smallest person there and I'm doing one arm around this very, very crispy lady and I'm doing one-handed compressions and her skin is so crispy, my, my gloves just ripped. And I'm doing barehanded compressions on this burnt body. And because the ice was so bad on the hill, it just felt like forever getting her down. I was basically hugging her. So we get into the truck and they couldn't intubate her. They ha- I think they got like a super glute, um, super glottic airway. I think they got like a king tube or something in her because it was just so bad and so swollen from the inhalation burns. And they did an intraosseous line, and it was just very chaotic. And we ended up getting her to the hospital, and her, who we found out to be a relative of hers, um, actually her son was already there, dead. Um, they pronounced him dead. And so they're right next to each other. And this was a smaller community hospital, not one of the big ones. And this hospital did not get a lot of cardiac arrests. <laughs> and so we were just like, what the fuck? And, you know, it's one of those cases where, like, we would keep getting pulses back on her or we 
we would keep getting like rhythms and you kind of just hoped it would be the last time you kept trying but with all those burns you're like man i i we want to save you but you know who should you save um you know i know we talked about that in dan's episode but this was an elderly lady you know what do you what do you put them through we we ended it ended up being called when we got to the hospital and i think that was probably for the best the other crew was still there kind of cleaning up all their stuff and I remember looking at the son and the mother next to each other and they're like, yeah, we think it was like carbon monoxide poisoning that just got him because he dropped so fast. Probably also a combination of cyanide poisoning because that's very common in fires as well. But at the time, I remember the CO poisoning stuck out and being like, oh, he wasn't cherry red, which is like this rumor that you hear all the time of being severe of late CO poisoning. And he was, wasn't. And that's how that guy died just really fast out of nowhere. He thought he was okay and he just dropped dead. So then the rest of that day, we went about our, we kept doing calls and we just smelt like burnt flesh the rest of the day. And nurses at the other hospitals would be like, wow, you guys stink. And we're like, yeah, because I hugged a fucking dead burnt body for like 30 minutes. So thanks. I don't smell like Chanel. <laughs> Welcome to fucking EMS. <laughs> so, so I told you that story <laughs> at like one o'clock in the morning. And I was like, that's why this bothers me. <laughs> and I didn't like I didn't realize that that was that whole story was behind my my freaking out about this. I mean, you should be freaking out about CEO regardless if you have horrific stories or not. But mine was more charged with emotion as a result. Yeah, you know, start telling me the story and I well it it all just it just clicked. It just made sense. I don't want to say it's how do I put this because of her experience. I'm trying to say I'm trying to explain how I felt, and it's it's a very hard thing to state what my sudden realization was. <laughs> you know, because yeah. because it's like four different things happening at once. You don't like gross stories. <laughs> I, yeah. So Christine told me what was happening, and for one, I don't like gross stories. Uh, I Christine would come home and tell me stuff about well, for instance, today a patient had something pretty nasty, and I was like, ew go away. Uh, it's, I'm not going to say it's fortunate that you had this experience happen, but in a way there is some fortune behind it because I mean, for one, I thought it, it strengthened our relationship. Basically, I, I, if the biggest takeaway you can get out of all this is if you hear something, investigate it, don't blow it off. <laughs> if something is of concern to you, look into it, see something, say something. Don't, don't, don't pull a James. And, you know, I, I study cybersecurity and have worked in technology. My first reaction was, oh, this CO detector has a defect. I should return it and maybe exchange it for something better. You know, look into it. Investigate it. Don't doubt your partner. Yeah. and Don't doubt your partner. Well, my, my big point about sharing this really pretty personal experience is that I feel like a lot of other couples have probably had arguments where the argument didn't end with, I'm really upset about this. Oh, because I saw someone die of CO poisoning. Right. Or, oh, it because it reminds me of this call. And they may have continued to have an argument because of it. And I think, I, I just think it's something to be cognizant of that, especially when you have a partner that may not get it. And 
and I don't say that in a in a negative way, like because you want to get it, but like you just can't understand what that's like. There's no way you could because yeah. you haven't lived that. And I don't always know that I'm reacting to certain things because of what I've done, but we were legitimately having a, a disagreement because I was freaking out about something that I saw 10 years ago. And and I'm sure other couples are have done the same thing and maybe they didn't realize it. So if if you are having, you know, a disagreement like that, like, hey, it's really important that you do this thing for safety because I saw somebody get messed up in this certain way. I mean, expressing where that fear comes from or expressing where that apprehension or something comes from to your partner, it's it's really important for one, your own sanity, and then two, your partner to kind of just get a little bit of a clue, even if they're the kind of type that doesn't like gross stories. You know, I think you may be surprised about what you find out about your relationship. Because I know I was. I think we learned a little bit about each other from that. Absolutely. You you and I come from two very different backgrounds. And our personal backgrounds are going to, I'm not going to say clash, but they're going to come into our life as we go forward. Yeah. And it was really interesting because for some reason, and I, I have not done this before, but for some reason, after we had the whole conversation... I went and looked up news articles from that fire. <laughs> and I remember, oh, because I was say- saying to you, after all of that, I was so pissed off because in the news and in the papers, there was a picture of, it was like, you know, a multi-alarm fire, two dead. And there was a picture of another service paramedic with these two dogs smiling on the cover of the newspaper. And... Her hair is not messed up and these dogs are like happy as hell, like enjoying the snow and two people are dead. And then it was like, but dogs rescued. And it like, again, you don't want credit, but smiling, perfect haired paramedic who is not our service with happy dogs is that's that picture is not an accurate representation of burnt skin coming off in my hand as I pull a woman from a snowbank underneath a burning porch. That's not my experience of this event. And I it was just such a disjointed picture of what actually happened versus what was being reported. I fucking hated that picture. And so I was like, oh, I want to find this picture. So I tried to look up the story and I couldn't find the picture, but I did find these news articles about it. Yay, internet. And it was kind of crazy. It was so crazy. I, I have not done this. I, I was about to say, you don't normally go back and did, when you were an EMT, did you normally go back and look at those stories? We would look like, oh, was it in the news to try? Because you never close your own things usually. Like you would try and see what was on the news within the, like the last week. Oh, okay. There was a shooting. Like, I wonder what happened. Within the next week, you would go try and see. But huh. otherwise... No, you just moved on to the next horrible thing that happened. Like see, you kind of forgot about all of them. See, that we're we're a little different in some ways because whenever I'm remotely connected to some story in the news, I I find myself jumping onto every website just to see the entire story. But how can you? <laughs> no, like, how can you do that when like every single day is something that could be in the news? Yeah. So I found a couple articles, and it was the craziest thing. So I thought this house was white. Every single memory that I've had of this story, that house is white. It was not. It was a very bright, different color. I thought this house was three stories. It was different. 
it was just like mostly the color of the house. The color of the house not being white because there was pictures. I was just like, what? Like, that's not what my memory tells me. I don't know why that bothered me. I guess, I mean, it didn't really bother me, but it was just, that's not what my memory tells me. I guess it's because it's something that I remember so vividly. How do I not remember the color of this house? I mean, I, I guess it's because everything was covered in snow and there was ice everywhere and there's smoke. And how could I remember? Um, because we did end up actually seeing pictures of it on fire and you could see how bad the fire was at the time. And there was actually a picture of the first patient being brought out and, and them doing CPR on the first guy. And I actually did not mention this when we were talking about it, but that picture was taken. I was thinking about this the day after. That picture was taken as I was probably responding to that call. And that woman was still probably breathing inside, dying. Ooh. Because she like she kind of had pulses as she was we found her. I mean, they were like coming and going. Um, I think maybe that's why I don't look back at news stories. I don't know. But it was just really weird to look back. I don't have a desire to look back at other calls. I don't think I usually will. But for some reason that night, I just felt like I wanted to. And so I did. It was interesting to do it. I saw their names. I don't really care to know their names. So I think also that's why I wouldn't do it again. There was like neighbor statements about who they were. In my head, I remember having been told that there was maybe a meth lab there. Nothing in the news report supported that. Again, in my head, that makes the fire more justifiable of why these people died. And I'm just going to keep going with that story because that seems to be okay for my head. I don't know if that's true, but it kind of doesn't matter, I guess. what The why doesn't matter. So look, looking into it a little bit too far, I think, sometimes is problematic. Um, but I mean, you can see why you don't really forget these things and that when there's something that kind of makes you face a similar situation, even though it's not exactly the same, like we didn't have a fire here, it brings up that memory a bit for you. You you have a reaction similar to it. So, so yeah, if you feel like you're getting a little annoyed by a situation and it reminds you of an old call, maybe you should talk to your partner about it. You know, I was just... I was, I was just thinking about, you remember when you, you came home from the concert and I, I was kind of in a, a grumpy mood, kind of, sort of. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Y- you kept trying to, uh, one of the side effects of seal poisoning is uh, anger, like uh, distance, well, if you will. It's altered mental status, which yeah. some people can be like angry and yeah, grumpy. Yeah. Altered mental status. And I was, I was a little off too. And you kept trying to diagnose me. Well, you were diagnosing me in your head. You kept trying to get me to go upstairs. Yeah, where there was no carbon monoxide. Where there was no carbon monoxide, and I was very resistant to that. Yeah, so later on, I told you, you know, when I came home and I found out you've been sitting in low levels of carbon monoxide all night because you had just taken the batteries out of the detectors, (laughs) I was trying to assess, were you symptomatic? Were you altered? Yeah. And fatigued? Or were you just in a bad mood and just tired because it was almost midnight? And it's, you know, when you go to EMT school, like one of the things they teach you is like, how do you assess a pediatric patient from across the room? And so you don't further agitate them. How do you assess your significant other from across the room so you don't start a fight? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, of course, that's what I was doing because 
I wanted you to one go upstairs, but also didn't want to be like, did you know that CO binds more selectively to hemoglobin than oxygen? Because you'd be like, fuck Yar. off. <laughs> you know, like you'd be like, I fucking am sick of this shit. And like you wouldn't listen to me. So I was you know, like, cause you're like, you're a know-it-all, go away. So I was trying to well, figure out like what I, the hell was going on. And I'm not the member of the family that says that. No. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. James's brother thinks I'm a know-it-all. Um, and com- he doesn't listen. And compared to James's brother, I do know a lot more than him. So. Oh, very true. Actually, <laughs> she has very- three degrees. She has three degrees. He has none. <laughs> He's very, very sweet. He's very sweet. He helped us move. He did. So I mean, yeah. So I told you that later. No, that, that's that's all I got. I, I just just reiterating what I said, or what I was saying earlier. If you hear something. Say something. If you see something, say something. Don't blow things off because they could be serious and they could kill you. <laughs> be afraid of everything. That's the moral of the story. Be a, be fucking afraid of everything. No, don't be afraid of anything. But when you have a, a smoke alarm or a CO detector in your house and it starts going off, don't be like me and pay fucking attention to it. Also, listen to your significant other. <laughs> listen to your significant other if they just happen to be if they happen to work in medicine. I listen to you uh, when it comes to cyber stuff, and I turn my Wi-Fi off and Bluetooth where in public places. See, I don't even do that. So uh, take her advice. (laughs) So just listen to me overall. Okay. So (laughs) thank you, James. (laughs) Thanks, hon. What's for dinner? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fuck you. Okay. (laughs) So now we're going to talk a little bit about what CO poisoning actually is, what it looks like. It's an odorless, tasteless gas great. How can I know to be afraid of this terrible thing that kills people? So now we're going to talk about it. Now I want to kind of do more of an academic deep dive into carbon monoxide poisoning, what it is, what it looks like, how you manage it pre-hospitally as a layperson, and then also in the hospital. I know people that are listening are non-medical. I know people are all different levels of certifications, either paramedics, firefighters, nurses, PAs, NPs, doctors, and you may live in different countries around the world. So I'm going to try and keep some things general, some things I'm going to get a little bit more technical on. So just stick with me. I'm going to try and... So if it seems like I'm getting really technical, one minute, just hang in there. I'm going to try and bring it back. So my background before being a nurse practitioner, I did a lot of medical education. I taught EMS and emergency medicine courses for fire departments and EMTs and the military. So I have done some teaching before. If you guys like this kind of thing, let me know. Maybe I'll do some bonus episodes on just some various topics. Um, If not, I will shut the hell up and I won't do it again, but just let me know. All right. So carbon monoxide, it's scary. It's terrifying. But why is it scary? Okay. And what is it? So it is a colorless, odorless, tasteless gas from hydrocarbon combustion burning. If you burn anything that is made of carbon, which is most everything, which actually anything that is organic comes from carbon. So that whole like, oh my God, it's an organic banana. Well, yeah, basically everything is organic because we all are coming from carbon. So you burn most everything, you're going to get CO, carbon monoxide, which is different than carbon dioxide, carbon and two oxygen. That's what we breathe out. Two different things. So whenever we're talking about a disease state or an illness or anything. We want to talk about the epidemiology. How often is this? Why do we care? How many people are affected by it? Who gives a shit? (laughs) So the most common type of carbon monoxide poisoning is fire-related. So the patient that I was talking about 
that was fire-related carbon monoxide poisoning, most common in the United States. However, inadvertent non-fire-related carbon monoxide poisoning has caused around 400 deaths annually in the U.S. around the last 10 years with intentional non-fire CO poisoning being almost double of that. So all of this information, all of these facts, I'm getting these from UpToDate, which is an online database that I have access to. Basically, it's an academic source that compiles all of these academic journals and articles on specific subjects, and it's curated as a, a reference that providers use whenever we want to look up something. It's basically our Dr. Google, our Wikipedia, but it's all evidence-based. That's where everything is coming from. Okay. So inadvertent, accidental, that would be me. My stove wasn't firing right. I have inadvertent, non-fire CO poisoning. So CO poisoning overall is one of the leading causes of poisoning deaths in the United States, as opposed to other types of poisoning we're talking about, like lead poisoning or something else. Mortality of non-fire unintentional carbon monoxide poisoning is around 1% to 3%. Well, that's good for me. So maybe I didn't almost die. (laughs) So mortality, how many people are going to die? Death is usually due to late onset neurological deficits lasting after initial stabilization. So that's terrifying for me because neurological effects can occur much longer after you were initially treated and medical professionals thought you were okay. And those neurological deficits can then cause you to die. Cool. So how do you get CO poisoning? Also known as everything you should be paranoid about. Maybe not be paranoid, but like everything you should be aware of and cognizant about. Fires, obviously. This is a huge one. And the thing with fires is that you can also get cyanide poisoning. And that has to do a lot with the plastics that are in our homes. And you burn a lot of the plastics and you'll get cyanide as a byproduct. And I'm not going to get into cyanide poisoning too much. It's it's treated differently than carbon monoxide poisoning. Just keep that in mind. But whenever you see someone who is the victim of a fire, there are a couple of different things as well as carbon monoxide poisoning. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Um, so fires, those are the biggest ones. And then improperly functioning heating systems, particularly natural gas, mine. Poorly ventilated heated devices, so kerosene heaters, camping stoves, charcoal grills, gas-powered electrical generators. You don't want to ever use those things inside or inside a tent, somewhere where they're not venting properly. Electrical wiring fires inside walls. So again, you're producing smoke. There's combustion. It is retained within a closed space. Motor vehicles inside buildings that aren't well ventilated. This is your real classic. In the movies, they piped in the exhaust from the car in the garage as an attempted suicide. That's what's usually depicted in the movies. But also these are things like ice rinks, you know, those Zambonis, if it's not well ventilated, but also parking structures, especially underground parking structures or tunnels. If tunnels are not well ventilated, you can get uh, carbon monoxide poisoning from there. Some cases have been reported of open air motorboats with like really big engines and people have been getting CO poisoning from that. And then one of the cool things about doing research on places like UpToDate and these medical databases that we have is you find these like really random facts that you're like, what the hell is this? And you want to go down this little rabbit hole, but it's just these really quirky little facts and I find them really interesting. So Water hookahs can also increase uh, carbon monoxide poisoning as well. And then also an increase in carbon monoxide exposures has been reported 
to occur in the immediate aftermath of hurricanes. I'm sh- there are studies, it linked to studies about that. I did not have time to go into why hurricanes cause more carbon monoxide exposures. I'm sure we could figure it out, but this is not a hurricane podcast. So the pathophysiology, what happens in the body that makes you sick? So this is going to get a little bit technical. Bear with me. Okay. Real basic pathophysiology of how blood and oxygen stuff works, right? So we breathe in oxygen. It goes into our lungs. It diffuses across our capillary membranes and our alveoli, the little air sacs that are at the basis of our lungs, goes into our blood. In our blood, oxygen usually attaches to hemoglobin, and there's usually four oxygen attached to our hemoglobin. It then travels through our blood all the way to our tissues and organs, wherever we need it, and then jumps off. Carbon dioxide jumps on. That's the waste product of all of our metabolism and cellular respiration and all that kind of stuff. The waste products, carbon dioxide, travel back up to our lungs, jumps off of the lungs, goes back across those membranes, and we exhale it. Not 100% exchanges, but there's a lot of pressures and diffusion and stuff like that. That's like the real basic version of it. So you have those four binding sites on hemoglobin. Well, when you breathe in carbon monoxide, not the waste product that you are exhaling, it binds to hemoglobin with around 240 times greater affinity than oxygen. So it is much, much stickier to hemoglobin, this stuff with iron that transports oxygen in the blood, than oxygen is. So that's not good. So when the carbon monoxide is sticking to hemoglobin, it also causes a structural change in your hemoglobin. And, and what it does is it makes the oxygen that's already stuck on the hemoglobin stay s- stuck to the hemoglobin. So it makes it more sticky to the hemoglobin. So when, when the blood starts to circulate back down to those tissues and those organs, the oxygen can't jump off. So not only are your binding sites on hemoglobin bound up partially by carbon monoxide that should be bound by oxygen. But if it's not fully saturated by carbon monoxide and there is some oxygen on the hemoglobin, which should be used in the tissues, the oxygen can't get off and be used in cellular respiration. And then also carbon dioxide, those waste products that should be scooped up and removed, that can't get on because that hemoglobin is full. So now you're not having gas exchange at the cellular level. So big, big, big problem. So that kind of further exacerbates this hypoxia or lack of oxygen to your tissues because of the structural change that is precipitated by the carbon monoxide at the level of hemoglobin. Hemoglobin with carbon monoxide on it is called carboxyhemoglobin. So UpToDate has this quote and says, carboxyhemoglobin shifts the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve to the left, impairing the release of oxygen at the tissues and utilization of oxygen in mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. Did anyone not remember that? <laughs> Leading to tissue hypoxia. So basically, that's exactly what that fancy statement means. The oxygen is too sticky to the hemoglobin because it's not able to dissociate or remove itself to go into the tissues. So this is a huge problem. But did you know you have actual baseline levels of carboxyhemoglobin in your blood anyways? So non-smokers have about 3% of their hemoglobin is carboxyhemoglobin. So there is some CO that's around in the air anyways, and you do have some. Now, smokers, if you are a smoker, you have 10 to 15% of carboxyhemoglobin in your body at baseline. Stop smoking. (laughs) 
I think I wrote my notes. Stop smoking, damn it. (laughs) So if you get exposed to CO, you're going to be symptomatic much, much, much sooner because you already have high levels of carbon monoxide in your blood. It's not good. So carbon monoxide is binding to hemoglobin. It doesn't just stay there. So it's in your blood, but then it's like, well, I don't want to go out and do things too. Like oxygen can't have all the fun. So it goes out and it goes into the extravascular tissue. So extravascular outside of your veins and your arteries, it goes into all of these places like myoglobin, which is your heart muscles. Also things like cytochromes and NADPH reductase. Again, these are all very, very technical things like biochemistry um, I'm looking at my notes. What the fuck are those? <laughs> oh, going back to biochem. Okay, so NADPH has stuff to do with like free radicals and anabolic processes and nucleic acid synthesis. Well, what are nucleic acids? That's like your DNA and your RNA. So if you're messing up these processes, you're you're really messing with the cellular structures of cells. So cytochromes they have a bunch to do with biological functions as well, especially in the liver. And that's really all I'm going to get into it. This is not a super, super technical podcast. Okay. So another physiological effect of carbon monoxide poisoning is this thing called DNS. So delayed neurological sequela or delayed neuropsychiatric syndrome. So (laughs) it may be due to all those enzymes and shit. So you have all these processes that get messed up, especially with like free radicals. There may be some impediment of RNA expression of certain enzymes and things like that. And maybe myoglobin, so heart function. So this this may be what's related to this. I did not deep dive into that too much. Also, these the pathology is not super well known. Okay, so back to that myoglobin, the heart muscle. Myocardial injury, heart tissue injury, is a common acute symptom and it's associated with long-term increased mortality. So in, in one study, of healthy individuals. So no pre-existing cardiac issues. They're middle-aged. They don't have a lot of comorbidities, which is how we say they don't have a lot of other diseases. Of the patients with moderate to severe carbon monoxide poisoning, those that had acute myocardial injury were twice as likely to die down the road than those without acute cardiac changes and triple those that didn't have carbon monoxide exposure at all. And so the follow-up, I believe, was about seven and a half years. So that's not that far off to then develop heart conditions when you were previously healthy. So if you're in your 40s without a heart condition, to die within 10 years of a heart condition, that's pretty rare. I mean, that's that's a pretty significant sequela of an exposure. So that's definitely something to be looking out for if you're a primary care provider, if you are someone that is monitoring someone long-term after they've had a CO uh, exposure, especially a moderate to significant one, and they presented with an initial myocardial or cardiac complaint. They would have had to have had cardiac symptoms. So EKG changes, cardiac enzyme elevations, something like that that is predictive of them having this kind of sequela. Okay. So this DNS, delayed neuropsychiatric syndrome. So up to 40% of patients with significant exposure can subsequently present with neurological symptoms anywhere from three to 240 days after recovery. They may not have initially presented with neurological symptoms, but all of a sudden they can develop them. And this includes cognitive deficits, so they're more confused, personality changes, movement disorders, focal neurological deficits, things like tremors, weakness, paresthesias, numbness and tingling, all of that kind of thing. Usually it's going to occur within 20 days, but 
they can also last up to a year. That's fun. So symptoms. So cool. That's how this whole thing works in the body, but that's way above my head. What does it look like in the moment? This is really important. So the symptoms are really variable. And so it depends on a couple of things. One, are you a smoker or not? Stop smoking right now. Uh, It depends on the amount of CO in the air, how well ventilated it is, the amount of circulating air, the amount of oxygen in the air, the respiratory rate of the patient, and the length of exposure, of course. So whenever you're talking about any kind of poison or administering any kind of drug or anything like that, you want to know the dosing, the concentration, and the length of exposure. And of course, how much are you taking in? If you're not breathing much, then, you know, you're going to have much less of a risk. Early symptoms of a carbon monoxide poisoning are headache, (laughs) fatigue, nausea, dizziness. These are all symptoms of the flu. So (laughs) yay me. But there's no fever. So that's kind of that big differential. And there's no body aches. That's important to know. Uh, Delayed symptoms. So a more significant presentation will be blurry vision, vomiting, shortness of breath, confusion and or agitation, chest pain, and then loss of consciousness. So what's up with the cherry red skin thing? You kind of see this all the time in movies and literature, not necessarily medical literature, but you hear this like, oh my God, look for cherry red skin. That's a sign of carbon monoxide poisoning. That is a super, super late sign and only after a very, very high exposure. And I will tell you that the guy that I saw that died didn't have cherry red skin. It may only be seen post-mortem and on an autopsy. And, and at that point, in mucous membranes or in organs such as the liver. So if they're like pale and you're like, nah, can't be CO poisoning, they're pale, it, it very well could be. All right, work up. How do we know? So the big, big thing about the acute management and workup is figuring out that it is CO poisoning. So because carbon monoxide is binding to hemoglobin, the way we use those pulse oximeters, the little things you put on your finger that shines the light through the tip of your finger, Those basically work by seeing how occupied that hemoglobin molecule is, and it can differentiate whether or not it is occupied by carbon monoxide or if it's occupied by oxygen. So SpO2, or pulse oximetry, is not reliable. You cannot go based on it. So you have to use CO oximetry or carboxyhemoglobin arterial or venous blood gas testing. Basically, your assessment in the acute setting especially the pre-hospital setting, is going to be from testing the air, if you have CO testing available, uh, most fire departments do, and, you know, patient presentation, is everyone else sick around them? Was there a precipitating event, like a gas leak, fire, something like that going on, using kind of your good judgment. Also, levels of carboxyhemoglobin in the blood don't necessarily predict symptoms or the likelihood that they will develop DNS. Now, when you're choosing a testing method, and this is, again, from more of the provider level, venous venous blood gases are not as accurate, but if it's a mass casualty event, it will definitely do, and it also works pretty well for serial monitoring if you want to assess for change in long-term treatment. Something to also keep in mind is that because a lot of patients may also present with cyanide poisoning, especially in the pre-hospital setting, Patients may be treated with a cyanokid or hydroxocobalamine, and that may interfere with CO blood gas testing in the hospital. Obviously, you want to be treating someone for cyanide poisoning, so go ahead and treat them. Don't hold back treatment, but 
make sure you're communicating that thoroughly. Again, obviously you're going to communicate any medication that you're administering pre-hospitally, but kind of spell that out too. Because in a if it's an MCI or something, you want to make sure that that's really clear. And if you're a clinician, make sure you're asking pretty overtly, did you administer a cyano kit, especially in, in the presence of a fire, if you're going to be testing for CO levels in the blood. Also, you want to be doing an EKG. Remember we talked about how important tracking those cardiac changes are in a patient because if they're having acute MIs, acute ischemia, it's going to have a big impact later on. So obviously there's not enough oxygen in the blood. The heart's going to be pretty impacted by that and the elderly more so. You also want to be checking acid-base balances, preferably arterial. And again, it's because we're not doing gas exchange at the tissue level. There's going to be a buildup of CO2 and I'm not going to get into that. You want to do a head CT if you see neurological deficits, mostly to rule out other causes like a stroke or something else, uh, like a like a bleed due to a trauma. You know, someone may have had CO, a CO exposure, passed out, and then hit their head. So you want to make sure that that's not also co-occurring. Your physical exam is generally going to be unremarkable. And then consider cyanide poisoning as well if there was a fire. All right. So how do we treat it? This is actually kind of easy. And this is really the the really big important part for everybody to know. If you were like, oh my God, I'm so bored. I didn't sign up for a lecture today. And I'm so, so sorry. Okay. This is the part you should pay attention to. If Stop smoking, buy CO detectors, and listen to this part. Fresh air. Fresh air, fresh air, fresh air. Get them to fresh air. If you believe that there is CO in a, a building, get the patient to fresh air. Ideally, have them come to you. Do not go in there if you do not have any protection yourself. And then high flow oxygen if you are a first responder. If you are a firefighter, if you are an EMT of any level, high flow, 100% oxygen, regardless of SpO2, regardless of what their pulse ox says. If they look like they're fine, it doesn't matter. Put them on high flow oxygen if you suspect any kind of carbon monoxide poisoning. We know that carbon monoxide is super sticky to that hemoglobin. We got to push it out. And the only way you can do that is by a super, super high concentration. And you're going to push those uh, concentration gradients in the favor of displacing the CO. This is a quote that I'm going to read you from up to date. The half-life of CO while a patient is breathing room air is approximately 250 to 320 minutes. So that's four to five and a half hours. While breathing high-flow oxygen via non-rebreather face mask, so they're not breathing in any external air, that's only 100% oxygen, the half-life of CO is about 90 minutes. And then with 100% oxygen in a hyperbaric chamber, it's about 30 minutes. So from room air, from atmospheric oxygen, which is about 21%, you can go from five hours down to 90 minutes. And so when we're talking about all of those crazy effects they can have on your body, you want to you want to get as much of that out as you can. So high flow O2 all the way. There have been so many things about, you know, don't give patients more oxygen than they need. You can cause all these problems. This is not one of those cases. Give them all that oxygen. And then of course, your regular CABs, you know, CPR if you need it, intubate as needed. And then for patients that have had a significant exposure and then for certain criteria, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So the criteria for hyperbaric oxygen therapy is as follows. If you have, and and this would not be something you would make in the field. You wouldn't be like, well, you know, I'm going to call in a stat hyperbaric oxygen therapy, you know, request. But it may be part of your clinical decision making to say, okay, well, I know certain hospital has a hyperbaric chamber, so I'm going to bring them there if you know that they're very, very symptomatic. 
So you wouldn't know this pre-hospitally, but CO levels greater than 25 in the average patient or greater than 20 if they're pregnant, any loss of consciousness, severe metabolic acidosis, pH uh, less than 7.1. Again, not something you would necessarily know pre-hospitally, but concern for end or Concern for end organ ischemia, so lack of oxygen. So chest pain, EKG changes, altered mental status, those things would warrant hyperbaric oxygen therapy. What is hyperbaric oxygen therapy? So hyperbaric chambers are pressurized chambers that can deliver higher concentrations of oxygen. Basically, it's, it's just pushing off that carbon monoxide out of the hemoglobin and out of your blood using pressure. So it's used for the bends, and it's also used for treatment of burns. Uh, if you're a clinician and you're not sure if you should be using this, call a medical toxicologist. Or if you don't have one because you're in the middle of nowhere, call poison control. Your local poison control can help you with the guidelines. Hyperbaric therapy is best started within six hours, and there's not much benefit seen over 12 hours. So as soon as you can, you want to start it. All patients should receive at least one treatment for one treatment at 2.5 to 3 atmospheres. So sea level is one atmosphere. That's your baseline. I don't have any other reference ranges for how much 2.5 to 3 atmospheres is, but that's the recommendation. So the problem with hyperbaric therapy for treatment of CO poisoning is especially if there is a MCI. So there's multiple people that are sick. There are not a lot of places that will do this. So the article I was reading said there's about 250 monoplace or multi-place, so single or multi-person occupancy hyperbaric chambers. And I looked up some places online and it was kind of funny because they didn't list some places. I was like, I know Mass General has a hyperbaric chamber and this wasn't listed on their website, on the website of Understeen Hyperbaric Medis- Medical Society. So I'm thinking there there may be facilities that are not always listed. So calling poison control would probably be the best. But the WHO, the World Health Organization, also has a list of poison control centers internationally. And you can go on their website and I'll post those in the show notes too. For some reason, if you want to look at a podcast for hyperbaric uh, center locations. But <laughs> please don't, with with everything to say on this podcast, look it up yourself. This is kind of more of a guideline and like a, hey, this is what's up. Again, you know, use your own references, your own local guidelines, and your own teaching. This is just more of a casual, informative podcast. So treatment with hyperbaric oxygen therapy has been shown to have decreased mortality and decreased chance of DNS, so those delayed neurological symptoms. All right. So whenever we talk about a disease, whenever we talk about any kind of condition, we have to talk about special populations. And what are our two biggest special populations? Pregnancy and pediatrics. Just like everything with pregnancy, there's not a lot of studies for this. We can't really experiment on pregnant ladies. Not that we would want to, but there's not many studies that are being done on this. So these are all kind of reviews of cases, and and they're still pretty limited. But the studies that have been done have shown that there is no impact on a fetus for mothers that have had mild to moderate exposure to carbon monoxide. However, for severe poisoning, high flow oxygen alone resulted in adverse outcomes for three out of five fetuses. While hyperbaric oxygen therapy was used in two cases, the fetuses did not have any adverse outcomes. I mean, we're talking about two, two cases. So the other one was three out of five had adverse outcomes, and then this was like two out of two were fine. So hyperbaric therapy alone is not known to cause fetal harm. Again, it's very limited, but risk versus benefit. So And just in general, fetal heart rate tracings in the third trimester 
Again, there's very limited studies, but it showed an initial tachycardia around 160 to 190 beats per minute, and it was very regular. There were not any accelerations or D-cells noted, and then after treatment with hyperbaric oxygen therapy, the fetal heart rate tracing returned to normal about an hour, an hour and a half after treatment with hyperbaric chambers. Okay, the kiddos. So in kids, symptoms are more subtle. They're harder to spot because kids are generally, you know, they're not as good at reporting things like this. And especially with vague symptoms anyways, where it's just like irritability, you're really tired, you just don't feel good. For kids, that can be a little bit harder for them to report and to really express. So you kind of have to just know your kid and, and see how they're feeling. Infants, some of the biggest symptoms can be just fussiness and difficulty feeding. And that is the symptom of like so many different things with infants. So it makes them really, really hard. And also younger children may develop symptoms sooner than older siblings or adults because of their higher oxygen utilization and higher respiratory rate. So they're going to be breathing in that CO that's circulating in the home with a faulty furnace much, much faster and they use much more oxygen in their little bodies. So they're going to become symptomatic earlier than anyone else really notices. So that's one of the downsides for little kids. However, there is some good news. The incidence of DNS or delayed neuropsychiatric syndrome is much lower in kids than it is adults. So they may present earlier and you may not necessarily notice it because it's harder for them to report, but the longer term effects of neurological symptoms are not necessarily as significant as they are in adults. And usually we say in kids, you know, kids are not just little adults. You have to have tailored treatments for pediatrics. Well, in this case, treatment is the same for adults and you can use hyperbaric therapy for children. Um, If they're less than five, you know, one of the considerations is if they have an active ear infection and you're a clinician, you may want to consider a myringotomy tube, which is the tubes that you get in your, in your ears, uh, in the tympanic membrane or your eardrum, just so that there's no rupturing prior to putting them in the chamber. Again, not a pre-hospital consideration or really anything else, but something to think about. The kid may be small and may need to accompany their parent into the chamber if they're really afraid. Infants in a chamber can get hypothermic really easily, so make sure that they're really warm. And again, a very, very select group of people are going to be considering these things, but you may want to think about a chest x-ray for any congenital abnormalities that may be worsened by hyperbaric therapy, but this is a small subsection of the population that this would apply to. And because of the higher levels of oxygen involved with hyperbaric oxygen therapy, it could trigger the closing of certain ductal cardiac abnormalities. And so you would want to consult a pediatric cardiologist. If this is your concern, why are you listening to my podcast? <laughs> it's it's such a niche area of medicine. If you are a neonatologist that is treating someone with CO poisoning, you're not listening to this podcast. All right. So we talked about all of that stuff. We had our little lecture. How do we prevent it? How do we not get CO poisoning? <laughs> Make sure your furnaces are in good working order. Don't run stoves inside. Make sure everything is really well vented. And of course, get CO detectors. <laughs> Make sure your smoke detectors have CO monitors in them on each floor of the house. <laughs> all right. Did I bore everyone to death? Did you like it? Did you find that educational and informative? Was it terrible? let me know on social media. Make sure you are following me on social media, like Facebook, Antidote Stories and Medicine Podcast. Check out the Facebook group. Hopefully there will be a lot of activity there on our little month hiatus. And on Instagram, 
Antidotes Podcast or follow us on Twitter, Antidotes Pod. And again, thank you so much to Peter Hopkins for our custom intro music and the new music that will be coming. You can email me at antidotespodcast at gmail.com. Please keep sharing the podcast. Keep submitting reviews. Keep reaching out. I'm looking forward to what this podcast is going to become and where it's going. And I can't wait to see you guys in March. I will see you then. Bye.